Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Friday, which means we have made it through another extraordinary week. Actually, this is my first five-day week since since the summer. And of course, uh, we're sort of back to our normal rhythm, which means that uh, I am lucky enough to be joined by New York Times bestselling author, Tim. (laughs) You love that, don't you? Tim Miller. And, and Tim, you are actually on the East Coast today, right? You're doing a you're doing your book tour. You're down in Florida. You were in Georgia, doing the whole yeah. South. Yeah, I'm in Tallahassee today. Um, I'm at an undisclosed location. I'm trying to keep a low profile as I travel to the state of Florida. I, every time I see a Florida State policeman somewhere, I start looking for potential exits. I don't I don't want to be shuttled onto a plane against my will um, while while I'm in the state while I'm in DeSantis stand. So I won't let anybody know. But last night I was at Stanley Bradshaw's bookstore, The Midtown Reader, and it was so, so great. If you find yourself in Tallahassee, do go go support it. It was so fun. A lot of Bulwark people there. There was one person actually double screening Thursday night Bulwark while sitting at my book event, um, you know, trying to mul- trying to multitask. So the super fans are out yeah. there. And I do so just wh- want to say, uh, yeah. because I did a drive, Charlie, from Atlanta to Tallahassee, and I, for some reason in my head, I don't know if I Googled this or I imagined it or hallucinated it, but I thought it was a three-hour drive when I decided to drive instead of fly. And after about six whiskeys uh, after the Atlanta book event, uh, one of my friends was like, well, when are you leaving tomorrow? And I told him, and they said, I, I think that's cutting it close. It's a five-hour drive. So I had five hungover hours driving from Atlanta to Tallahassee, which allowed me to get fully caught up on my podcast. And I'm I'm a little... For the first time, since maybe the first time I was on with you, I'm a little intimidated because your last two podcasts, General Hurtling and Catherine Rampell, I mean, these people are bringing facts. They, they, I learned a lot of things on the on this drive. And, uh, you know, today, listeners are just going to get candy. They're just going to get you know, my bullshit. You know what? We need candy after the spinach. <laughs> I think of yourself not as candy, but think of yourself as the well-earned dessert after a lot of heavy lifting. And I mean, a you know, I, you know, I mean, no rich General you know, talking to, you know, General Hurtling and, and to Catherine Rempel, you, you come away, I come away uh, smarter because I'm asking them to explain very complex things in the in the world. And they did a masterful job. But they were again, really great. it is Friday. It is the weekend. We need dessert. So, OK, deep breath here. Um, <sighs> since you are in Florida, we have to talk about the absolute real genius of Ron DeSantis, uh, who has, who has, uh, this is a, just an epic troll. It has triggered the libs. There are, you know, think of all the tears that you're getting in Martha's Vineyard. He is flying refugees slash migrants to Martha's Vineyard. It is, as I'm being told by right-wing media, including our friends at Commentary and, and even at the Daily Beast, is a chef's kiss, just brilliant political theater because it exposes all of the hypocrisy in the North. So, Tim Miller, hmm. tell me about real man of political genius who is the governor of the state that you're you're hanging around in. I mean, maybe it's a political winner, but I do find it very weird that you would write a column if you are, you know, a person of even a modicum of empathy, that you would write a column talking about how it is a political winner to use refugees escaping Venezuelan communism uh-huh. as just pawns and a big fucking joke. And and if you assess that that is a political winner, which I, which they might be right about that, uh, the, the question then kind of becomes, well, 
what does that say about our fellow man that that would be considered a political winner? Because well, this nothing is not, we haven't heard. Before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nothing good. I mean, it feels like that's something we should at least be reflecting upon if, if you're going to talk about how great it is. I, here's the thing. I would almost understand the argument if it was if this was a situation. If Ron DeSantis was the governor, you could even have imagined this in the 90s. You have a governor in a southern state. It's like we have all these refugees coming in. Uh, I'm going to call my buddy, Charlie Baker, up in Massachusetts. You know, we are going to create a Who's also a system. Yeah. yeah, who's a Republican, by the way. We're, you know, we're going to create a transfer. You know, I, this happens all the time, right? Where you're When the Afghanistan refugees were trying to move uh, people to a state where you know, maybe they have family or where there'd be more job opportunities, more housing. Like, okay, like that. There's nothing in, in this. It's kind of underlying the argument about the people who are defending this. So like, oh, there's nothing inherently wrong about moving to a different state. It's not like they were sending them back to Venezuela or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's but it's the way in which he goes about it. It's like a purposefully, purposefully cruel like troll, and they're treating these humans, you know, to this to this big troll that is also, by the way, totally unnecessary, totally unnecessary. I mean, at least in Greg Abbott's situation, and and screw that guy forever, and and but at least Greg Abbott is having to manage like a, a challenging border situation. And, you know, I, I wish again that he was in good faith, like looking to help from, for help from other states, which he's not. Ron DeSantis isn't even in that situation. You know, I don't know for those of us our readers up north in Canada or people who haven't spent any time down here in Florida, you might want to consult a map, but we're not even fucking close to the border here. Yeah. You go through multiple states. Yeah. Ron DeSantis is not managing an influx. He deported people from San Antonio. Here's an interesting detail. He's using Florida tax dollars to fly Venezuelan refugees fleeing communism from Texas to Massachusetts, that, that may be somewhat you know complicated there, but again, they're yeah they're not even um, they're not even Florida migrants. It is interesting that he chose the, the Venezuelans, but again, you know, let's not get hung up on the details because this is just brilliant political theater because it owns the libs. I mean, their tears are the sweet sweet aphrodisiac for the base. So this is working. Look, you're a former you know political consultant slash hatchet man. And there's part of you that goes, oh man. I wish I could have pulled off this kind of shit. I mean, this is this this is better than coming down a golden escalator and blaming Mexican rapists. I mean, okay, so Trump did that. That you know, these guys are actually putting them on buses and sending them to Chicago and Washington D.C. I mean, what? I mean, I really don't. Are the libs owned? I, this is the other thing. It, it, it's like now the part of the owning the libs. I don't think you even have to actually own them. You just have no. to imagine that you are, yes, and, and, exactly. and and consider that you're being clever, right? Like I saw this, I was, I was uh, you know just doing a quick scroll through Twitter before we got on this morning to make sure I didn't miss anything overnight, and you know I saw Guy Benson, who's another one of these. Yeah, on the more conservative, uh, on the more normal side, if you have to do, you know, he'd be a team normal person of the of the Fox pundit crowd, like not the uh, not the the most obnoxious, not on the Tucker side of things, yeah. and and he's like. You know, doing this tweet, making fun of the Martha's Vineyard people, acting like they're not welcoming the refugees, and and that the liberals are now getting a taste of their own medicine. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like the people in Martha's Vineyard seem to be very welcoming to these fifty refugees, and um, like the complaints are about how how absurdly pernicious this was. Like to the, to send these people to somewhere where they don't know where they're going, you know, with no plan in place, just dumping them off here. 
Like that is what people are complaining about. Uh, you know, there are plenty of videos you can go see online of how welcoming the folks are in, in Martha's Vineyard. They're welcoming people everywhere in the country. Actually, they don't look triggered. They don't. They yeah. don't look owned. No, it's only on Twitter. Well, this is the difference between you know actually you know consummating an act and simply masturbating, fantasizing about it, right? Well, yeah, I, I would like to pause I mean, there. That's, <laughs> and then, yeah. I mean, that's, I was just kind of contemplating, you know, that that imagery and, and just decided to, 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 you know, move on. So give people a little bit of insight and sort of behind the scenes. Um, we're doing this just a little bit earlier because you have to uh, get on the road. Usually I've sent out my newsletter, Morning Shots, by now, and you've had a chance to see what I'm ranting and raving about. In this particular case, though, I wrote it this morning, but as you and I are speaking, our brilliant and incredibly talented art director, Hannah Yost, you know, <laughs> comes up with comes up with art. And so I, I do wait for for her to come up with the art. And, and it just came through in the last like 60 seconds. And so I'm going to press send on this. OK, OK. And the title is The Cruelty and the Crazy Migrant Airlifts and the Unabomber Candidate. We'll get to that second one. And I hope people don't misunderstand my, my slightly sarcastic tone here. But, but I start off by saying, you know, sorry. But shipping migrants to Martha's Vineyard is brilliant, a political masterstroke, an epic troll, and above all, hilarious. You can tell because of all the reactions on the right, you know, the LOLs, the triggering the lib huzzahs, right? Um, you know, and sending, I mean, a busload of migrants to Vice President Harris's residence. I mean, I mean, great wing Twitter needs to catch its breath. It's laughing so hard. And now guess what? They're going to send them to Delaware. This is just, I mean, and then you see all these folks on the right, including the normies. You see people like, you know, Matt Lewis in The Daily Beast and you see Noah Rothman in commentary saying, you know, this is pretty good stuff. This is a political coup. You know, blue states finally getting a taste of what red border states have had to deal with every day. And the cruelty is sort of like a sideshow or it's a bonus. And I think, you know, part of this and I think this comes back to the world that you have escaped from, that you are a refugee from. Yeah. Is the narratives more important than all these cuckish concerns about morality? Because I'm, I'm willing to stipulate. There's a real problem at the border. There's a legitimate debate over how migrants should be handled, right? And there's a legitimate case to be made about, you know, we should share the burden of all of this. And so Abbott and DeSantis, I think, have every right to raise questions about the border policies. They could do all kinds of things about it. They can make speeches. They can hold press conferences. They can run ads. They can raise money off anti-immigrant outrage. They can even stage political events, right? I mean, and there's nothing inherently awful about a stunt except this one is fundamentally different. And, I, and so this is why you and I are out of step here, because this one is different because they chose to use people, including very vulnerable children, as their pawns and props. I thought JVL made a great point yesterday. He said those planes were filled with actual human beings, people with dignity, people with hopes and dreams, problems and challenges, people with names and families. But again, DeSantis knows what he's doing. He's doing it in a way to create as much confusion and cruelty as possible and for a lot of the fans and, and they and of course now it turns out they lied to these people they told them that they were going to boston for expedited work papers so i mean the whole thing's a scam i think what's revealing is for the fanboys people like hardcore bigots like kurt schlichter i mean the deception is is like a bonus because it, it's just like an extra you know extra dose of cruelty and he loves it he he tweeted out, good, I hope it's true that they lied to these people. I'm utterly indifferent to what happens to a bunch of people who shouldn't be here anyway and who disrespected us by breaking our laws. So if they got screwed over, I think it's funny. See, and I think that this the, the way our, our right-wing politics has become 
the cruelty is the point, but also, and this is the point I make in my newsletter, the laughter is the point. This spectacle of cruel laughter that is has become like this animating juice for, I'm sorry to say, millions of people. And even the people who ought to know better look at this and go, well, if they're jazzed, then it must be a, a good tactic, right? You know, wh whether or not it is just inherently unchristian and fundamentally inhuman and cruel. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. There's a lot there, Charlie. And so I have, a, I have two kind of separate thoughts. Um, uh, the dehumanization element of this, though, and that's really the word, right? It's just I, they're not treating these people with the, that they are individuals that have human dignity, right? And it ties into what we've been t discussing every week almost when I'm on here about the pro this pro-life question and what like, what does it mean to be pro-life and and, you know, is it about more than just having the most restrictive abortion policy imaginable and imaginable? And this is, um, you know, that in the book, I, I kind of categorized all the different enablers of Trump. And, and one of the categories was this LOL, nothing matters Republican, yep. mm -hmm. uh, that, which was coined by Ben Dominich over at the Federalist. And and I said in the book um, that in a lot of ways, even though it's kind of the most banal, it's 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 the most pernicious because what I had observed over the past you know decade was that among the people that staff Republican campaigns, like this was the most common actual rationalization. It was becoming more and more popular. And as people and as younger people come out of college, I spoke at FSU yesterday. I was talking to the kids about this. Actually, the types of people that are drawn to want to go work for somebody like Ron DeSantis are the ones that are that get the biggest laughs out of the out of stunts like this, right? And so it's like a magnet for more and more of this kind of nihilist people that have this nihilist viewpoint into Republican campaigns, which you know, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then there's more candidates that, that are acting like this. And, and you know, that is just the way now that they avoid having to deal with the moral ramifications of Trump's party, right? That they no longer even have to justify, right? And, and it's not as if there wasn't cruel policies from uh, Republicans in the past or any political party for that matter or, or things that ended up hurting people, policies that ended up hurting people. But, you know, there was always this feeling that, okay, well, we had to justify why we did this, right? It was maybe it was better, you know, we thought that this policy would be better for certain people or we reject the critics who say that this policy is going to hurt immigrants or, you know, we think on balance we need a rule, of, right, right? You have to come up with some, some policy justification for this. That is not the case anymore. Now these, these staffers' protection against having to deal with the moral questions of our time are LOL, nothing matters, owning the libs is all that matters, trolling them is all that matters. They're so evil, they're our enemy in this war that we can do whatever we want. And if they're complaining about it, then that's an end unto itself. And um, the, the war also, I, I think the other thing about JVL's newsletter, just one other comment on this, what you went through, that I think that he hit on very well yesterday in the triad, was this, you know, for certain types, like for that DC crowd, it isn't really a Christian nationalist war. It's kind of this kind of cultural war against people they resent. But out in out out here in uh, the provinces where I am right now, there is this element of Christian nationalism. And thinking about what DeSantis said, and I, I pulled this up, you know, in his speech at Hillsdale about putting on the full armor of God, stand firm against the left schemes, you'll face the flaming arrows, but if you have the shield of faith, you'll overcome them. Again, now, that, that is even more pernicious, right? Because he's giving these folks the cover of like that there is a religious crusade here right that you can dehumanize these people you can you can be cruel to them you can troll them and that is all part of our you know onward christian soldiers battle 
which you don't need a um, a religious scholar to talk about the, fl- the flaws of that mindset. Well, apparently but, but, you do. Yeah, because well, apparently you do, but yeah. but but right. I mean, so now you can see if you are part of this ecosystem and you've accepted the oh we're in a religious war. Well, then who cares? Fuck these fifty people. If you're part of this ecosystem and you've decided that lol nothing matters, the libs pain is all that matters, and like winning today's one hour Twitter fight is all that matters. Then who cares? Fuck these people, right? And, yeah. and you don't have to treat everybody like you know like they are humans with dignity. Okay, so. I think this is related to it. The number of political pundits who, in theory, don't think necessarily as partisan activists and in theory, don't think like uh, political consultants, you know, from from this world have now seemed to have internalized this idea that you evaluate something just based on does it work or does it not work? Does it win or does it not win? As opposed to, wait, is it fundamentally wrong? How how people have, we have gotten so into this mentality that we judge everything by the needle as opposed to, wait, do you understand you lied to a child you, who is vulnerable, who just come from another country. You can imagine the fear and the dislocation. You put them on a plane, you drop them off as part of a political stunt. You have used people who have been lied to, who are, you know, really at probably one of the most perilous moments of their life, you've used them as, as, as pawns. Yes, it's going to play well in the media. You might actually score points in the polls. It might help you win a primary, but it's wrong. And, and it's sort of interesting. It's, it's like, there's this whole world of punditry that goes, well, yes, it may be wrong, but the most important thing is, does it work? Does it affect them? I and mean, this is, seems like this part of this disease that we've gotten into. That the media, that people who ought to be have some arm's length from this sort of thing have internalized, you know, basically, you know, hatchet man, war room, activist, troll thinking. Yeah, the game, right? That's what I was the I, game. I mean, I right about. It's it. right. This is the game. Like we're in the game. Winning the game is what matters. Not anything else. Not the merits. Not what the actual impact on people are. Right? And you can just imagine. It's not as if this is a new thing, but it's just completely on steroids. That there is this this ecosystem is developed where where that is the prime interest. Right? And you can just imagine going through history, like when Loving versus Virginia was passed. You know, saying that was wrong, saying that was bad, trying to come up with some troll that would have kept interracial couples from getting married in your state would have been a political winner. Right. I, you know, that right. was not a pop. You know, interracial marriage was not popular when loving passed, but it's hard to imagine, you know, like the local newspaper praising, writing a headline, praising the politician that did that. Right. With like, well, this was a savvy move here by the local, you know, whatever governor of Florida who passed some thing that made it harder for interracial couples to get married or, or bust them to Martha's Vineyard or whatever. Right. Because we didn't have this like yeah. uh, that this whole mindset hadn't developed right and and so you know i do i totally agree that that is that's part of what is kind of allowing this to happen yeah but i mean i think it's important to point out that we understand this because we've been there okay you were part of the game i look back on some of the things that i said and didn't say and and things that i did you know particularly in in the in the first decade no this first and second decade of this century and you do get caught up in the game, in the fight, us versus them. And therefore, all information is evaluated by the simple standard 
not whether it's right or wrong, but whether it works or doesn't work, right? Whether it wins or it loses. And so you are looking for cudgels. You're looking for weapons. You ignore things that might hurt your case. You will find a way to spin something that helps your case. You know, after you've been in it, you can step back and be like, wow, I really got caught up in that. And that's basically the theme of your your book. You get caught up in it. But it's easy to get caught up in it. And, and I'm, I watched the spread of this and you wonder because it feels this morning as if to take, you know, the normals out there who are praising this as, as a smart political move and to say, OK, wait, but it's fundamentally inhuman, immoral and cruel that that feels like. There's an irrelevance in the in the current dialogue. Do you understand what I mean here? That it, right. No, that, that you're you, really out of step if you even raise these questions any longer. Yeah, like you're the wrong one. You're the ridiculous right. one. I, I I wrote about this an- anecdote about how there in politics there's this notion of uh, the guy that literally taught me campaign school said that the highest compliment that you can get as a political staffer is that is for somebody to say that guy gets it. And what they get it means doesn't mean that they get that, yeah. you know, you got to do your best for people. What they, they get it means is that they get that winning is what matters. And they get, they get you know, how to play the game. And, and that if you are a person right now who's saying, this is crazy, like this is wrong. Like think about these kids in Republican world and conservative world, even in pundit world, you know, that's kind of like, all right, get off your high horse. I mean, that's, that's just, right. The, one of the scold. Sad, yeah, you're yeah. a school. That the Lindsey Graham, the saddest thing I think it was in Leibovich's book for me. One of the saddest quotes was Lindsey Graham interviewing with him and talking about how he looks back on the McCain, his time with McCain, is saying that you know sometimes me and John we'd get on our high horse too much. And it was like, no, that's when you and John were right, actually. Like when you and John were on your high horse, were the times that you were doing the most good. Uh, and and so you know, in addition to all the stuff that we've all been talking about. Um, you know, about how inhuman it is. The other thing, just on the fundamental merits, you would think that there'd be someone in conservative world left who would be like, you know, welcoming people who are fleeing communism is good, actually. No, it's like right. a fundamental tenet he of the is. Republican yeah. Party for, you know, most of my life uh, was that fleeing, you know, people fleeing communism was something we should welcome as part of our broader world war against this ideology. But but that, yeah, no, that's a, that's a stupid detail. And of course, one of the great inversions of of the Trump era has been this this notion that uh, concern about things like a character or right and wrong are signs of weakness. That right. cruelty is a marker of courage. Does someone have the courage to do something illegal, something horrible, something cruel? All right. So, speaking of the uh, culture wars. Let's talk about what's going on with gay marriage uh, and whether or not the Senate is going to have a vote before the midterms on codifying Obergefell. And of course, the reason we're all talking about this, I think the podcast listeners know, is because after the Dobbs decision, no precedent seems absolute any longer. Um, the, the court has signaled the willingness to overturn settled law, even if it has massive social disruption. And of course, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas very helpfully uh, kind of like waved the red flag and said, you know, based on the kind of thing that we just did here in Dobbs and the logic uh, in saying that there is no right to privacy in the Constitution, then we need to revisit all these other decisions. We need to revisit the Griswold decision that legalized contraception. We need to revisit uh, Obergefell, uh, gay marriage. We need to uh, revisit, you know, the Texas decision that actually said, no, you can't criminalize same-sex sex. So what's going to happen? It, initially, it looked like yeah. you, you were going to have a bipartisan uh, compromise. You might get 10 Republican votes. What are you seeing? What do you think is going to happen? 
Yeah, a disappointing, you know, uh, uh, in the broadest scale, number of Republicans that, you know, did not want to protect my marriage in the House of Representatives when they voted on this, but also kind of a surprising amount who did. I think it was 47, I think. So, you know, that I think gave people a sense that this was going to pass, right? That it was going to pass the Senate, that you, if you get that many in the House, you could get the 10 needed in the Senate, and that Biden would be able to sign this and, and codify it. And, and what it is just, this is, Codifying Obergefell has kind of been the shorthand for this, but what it really is, because of the nature of some arcane legal stuff, is the codification of Windsor, which was the case before Obergefell that that said that DOMA was unconstitutional. So this would, you know, essentially ensure that you know the, all of the things from the Defense of Marriage Act the fe- about the federal government, you know, the federal government would have to recognize marriages, uh, existing marriages, et cetera, rather than new new marriages. So that that might have to be a separate law. But but codifying Windsor is also is still very important, and you know you would think that 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 would you know be something that Schumer would want to put up for a vote here before the midterms. Now, but here's the political question: the Republicans. And just another astounding example of cynicism behind the scenes, apparently, it's it, based on reporting, it seems as if they are saying to the Democrats, you know, if if we just table this till the lame duck section, and the lame duck session of Congress is the session of Congress that, that happens after the elections, before the next Congress comes in in January. If we table this to the lame duck session, you got we got the votes you know, basically. And there's sort of this little handshake deal happening behind the scenes. But, but yeah, if you put it up before the election, eh, I don't know. Right. And so, um, a little bit of cynical gamesmanship, it seems like for the Republicans and the Democrats in the Senate who I I think I really, I'm of two minds about this. Baldwin who's who's really putting in the work on this. Tammy Baldwin. I think there's some people in the Senate on the democratic side who are like, this is fine. Let's just get this done. Like, like codifying this and protecting gay couples is the most important thing. But there's another view, you know, I, I think it was the head of the DCCC, Sean Patrick Maloney, who's gay and married as a Democrat, tweeted yesterday, like, no, fuck this. Like, we got 47 Republicans in the House. Like, let's not be held hot. He didn't say the F word, but this was his general tone of the tweet, if you go read it. Like, let's not be held hostage by these Republicans. Put it on the floor and make them vote. Like, put up or shut up. Are you really going to vote against you know, protecting existing gay marriages in the year 2022, like that is a political loser and and call their bluff. And, you know, part of me leans that way, really, to with, with Maloney. Like, I think that's right. I think it's a political winner. I kind of think they get the 10 votes anyway. You know, if you just sort of look at the 17 they got of the gun vote or, or whatever many it was, you know, there's even some buffer if you just take the people that voted for the gun compromise. So, you know, I, when I was with Chris Murphy, we talked about this, I interviewed Chris Murphy for Not My Party this week, and he said that I asked him who his Desert Island Republican was, and he said it was Tom Tillis, which is kind of a surprising oh, answer. I was like, well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was like, if that's your Desert Island Republican, is he at least going to do the right thing on gay marriage? And he said, I think he is. So, you know, so if you got yeah. t- somebody somebody like Tillis there, uh, you know, it just feels like that's 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 a, that's a vote that they're going to get. So so this is sort of a little intra-democratic debate and and I think that the Democrats really have done well over the summer and the fall this year putting popular things up for a vote and forcing the Republicans to have to, you know, deal with their own internal divisions and so I think they should do it. Well, and also, I mean, you can see from the political dynamic here in, including, you know, my state's senior senator Ron Johnson, who's been flip-flopping on this issue, his initial uh, reaction was, well, I see no reason 
not to codify. I mean, it is the law of the land. You don't want to disrupt the lives of millions of, of Americans and conservatives generally don't want to have that kind of radical change. And then, of course, he gets squeezed by social conservatives. And now he's flip flopped and said it's all about religious liberty. But here's the interesting thing. And, and, and our colleague, Will Salatin. Had, had <laughs> I'm sorry point. to interrupt. We yeah. just, I just, let's just put a finer point on this. Flip flopping back against gay marriage in 2022 yeah. is like pretty hilariously bad. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, it is. That's an important point. It's flip-flopping toward a position that is toxically unpopular. Normally, when politicians in a general election, in a tough re-election re fight, and, and by the way, I, I still think that Ron Johnson's likely to win that race, but in a tough re-election fight in a very evenly divided state, normally you flip-flop toward a position that is popular, not away from a position that's popular. So in Wisconsin, 72% of voters favor legalized same-sex marriage. Now, here's what makes it more interesting, that when you break it down, there was a poll, the Marquette University Law Poll back in April, asked people, you know, broke it down by party, and they found that, again, you know, overwhelming support for legalized same-sex marriage among Democrats, among independents, but also among Republicans. In April of this year, 58% of Republicans said they favored legal gay marriage. Only 31% were against it. And, you know, as our colleague Will Salatin wrote, I mean, this has been the pattern all around the, the country. You know, since 2004, there's been a kind of a collapse of opposition to same-sex marriage. Um, you know, in the latest NBC News poll, which was taken in May, the opposition among Republicans is down to 31%. And again, there was a Pew poll found 56% of Republican leaners favored same-sex marriage. So I guess my point is that Republicans absolutely do not want to have this vote in the Senate because right. with the exception of just the most deplorables, they know where their constituents are. This is not a vote they want to have to take. And if they vote it down, it will once again clarify what's at stake in the elections. I mean, sorry to go back to, you know, what works politically, what doesn't work politically. But I mean, right. this would definitely, either way, it works politically. On the merits, obviously, look, this is the law of the land. You've had millions of people, including you, who have relied upon it. It is a deeply unconservative thing to do to say, um, okay, we've now changed our mind. We've changed the number of justices on the court. And therefore, we're just simply going to... Uh, renege on the promise the country made to you. So I think this is a disaster. Like the abortion issue, this unites Democrats and divides Republicans. This should be very clear. Yeah, two things. One, the first one, I'm just going to whisper because I don't like a Charlie is right thing. But I did, uh, on my travels this week, I did have somebody tip me off to some internal numbers about the Wisconsin Senate race that were maybe a little more Charlie is always right than Tim is always right, as I've been a little bit more of a Mandela partisan. So anyway, a little bit of a concerning thing about what people are saying on the internal side of the Wisconsin Center rate versus what, what the public polling looks like. But when the ads are just brutal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On the gay marriage thing. We've been talking about this. Don't treat it like a game. You know, don't care just right. about the polls. But like right. politics still is a competition, right? And so this is always about like finding a balance in all things, right? Like how can you act with integrity, with earnestness and good faith to like advance what is best, you know, for the people that you're serving, you know, for exactly. your political interests, right? Like how can you unite those two things, right? right. And so, right. you know, the Republicans on this are acting completely 
cynical, as, as I said. They're holding this vote hostage, basically, because they don't want to deal with the political ramifications of having to vote on it. So then the Democratic question is, okay, well, do we let them play the game and just be hostage to their political interests, or do we try to push an advantage for ourselves. And and I think that that on an issue that we care about that we genuinely want to pass, you know, we're not like putting, you know, Tim and Tyler on a on a plane to Kansas or whatever the inverse of the, of this would be. And so I think that it makes total sense to try to push the little advantage. It's it's one thing if it's like the gay couples are really in an acute threat to lose gay marriage and and that could happen any day and if you just suck it up and deal with the republicans we could protect it and save it and we can be assured of that but that's like not the situation we're in like the, the threat is not acute right now it's potential in the medium term we don't really know that the republicans would come through in the lame duck who the hell knows they could end up screwing screwing the democrats over and maybe 10 votes don't materialize maybe it's only eight or nine i was talking to somebody who knows Shelley more capito staff and like that's the person that might be gettable and i was like could we get capito for this i was asking them and and they're like you know maybe it depends on how many republicans are she doesn't like to be the 60th vote on things right she doesn't like to be the 61st vote so who the hell knows maybe it doesn't materialize maybe there's a bunch of people who don't want to be the 60th vote so if you consider all of the the different contingencies here like it seems to me that the right play to do is put the damn thing up to vote and let the republicans put up or shut up and republicans really want to deny gay married couples protections in the year of our lord 2022 then let them deal with the consequences of that action and that's kind of where i land on this now speaking of uh, these culture wars i want to get your thoughts about lindsey graham earlier this week because the other day was it uh, i've lost track of days was it wednesday that was joe biden's really horrifically bad day or was that Tuesday? Yeah, Tuesday. When, when yeah, terrible yeah, inflation numbers came, the the Dow Jones, uh, you know, completely collapsed. Uh, the juxtaposition with his celebration was uh, was cringeworthy. And then along comes Lindsey Graham and kind of bails out the Bidens by saying, "Yes, absolutely, uh, I am going to propose a, a nationwide ban on abortion." Now, what makes this? There's several interesting twists there because. His proposal is not the most radical out there. In fact, his proposal was 15 weeks, which polls much better than absolute bans, and includes exemptions for exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. But other Republicans reacted like, oh my God, Lindsay, you have just dropped the biggest possible turd into our punch bowl. (laughs) Because I think, again, they recognized that this was a political distraction, but also, once again, clarifying that the stakes of the midterms and what the stakes of the midterms are, that Republicans, in fact, have completely pivoted away from let's leave it up to the states to we want a federal ban. So, yeah. And then, by the way, Lindsey got got the shit beat out of him on Fox News for doing that, too. So, yeah. I mean, I think Lindsey is being too clever by half. It's unclear why he didn't like run it by other people. I don't I don't I don't have any insight into that. Um, but. I understand, I think, where his head is at, right? Which is just like, okay, if we can get the Republican position to be 15 weeks with exceptions, you know, then you know, that can maybe even the playing field on this a little bit more rather than the Democrats' position being, you know, the status quo and Republicans' position being like the most insane thing being proposed by Doug Mastriano or whatever. And I think that was what his, his mindset was, but it was a total backfire. The execution of it was terrible in large part because his proposed ban didn't supersede the crazy bills in the states. And this is why Republicans are stuck between a rock and a hard place on this issue, because 
you know, uh, they, they, there is not majority Republican support for a 15-week ban in the Senate because there's a significant number of Republican senators who represent states that either already have or are aspiring to have much more restrictive laws than that. And, and so they don't want the blowback of some federal ban, you know, overriding their five-week dog the bounty hunter ban or whatever the hell they have in all these states, right? And so, yeah, for that reason, uh, you can't unite your own party and you continue to give the Democrats their biggest political advantage here, which is the fact that they can focus on these absolutely mind-bogglingly extreme laws that are being advanced exactly. in certain Republican states. No, I, I agree with you again. I think Josh Barrow had a really good piece where he said why this won't work. And he you know talks about the dynamics here that that even though you can be very clever and parse out the polls and say, well, you know, take this nuanced position, that's just not the way it plays out in real life. Because what happens is that people are now going through thinking about various circumstances about when do we want to ban abortions? When do we not ban abortions? And of course, uh, whatever Lindsey Graham says, whatever moderate, quote unquote, moderate position he takes, then, you know, along comes the Republican legislature in West Virginia saying, you know, hold my beer, you know, uh, no exception, complete ban. So there we are. So you've had an interesting week. I'm I'm interested in hearing a couple of things. You you actually talked with uh, you talked with the. uh, with the governor of Georgia the other day, uh, Governor Kemp, and uh, you confronted him with a very, very interesting question. I, I know you're going to write it up from from Monday, but we've already posted some of the the video of of that. So t- tell tell us about uh, tell us about your your chat your chat. Well, with, I, got, uh, I gotta say first, it's just so Georgia. fun to be on the other side of the of the mic now <laughs> on this. I was I was just having a blast watching the Brian Kemp. You know, the nerdy Tim Millers from 15 years ago, standing next to him, giving me the evil eye, you know, getting nervous, not wanting me to ask a question, trying to get someone else to ask a more boring question. Um, you know, and I was like, no, I t- just talked right over them, jumping in in the in the press conference. I guess I guess some credit to Kemp. A lot of Republicans are hiding from the media right now altogether uh, because they can just talk in their own echo chamber. At least Kemp was willing to talk to the assembled press there. He had an event about an hour and a half north of where my book event was in Atlanta. And so I drove up there to see him in person. I wanted to ask him a couple of questions after the first one, They didn't, which they didn't like too much. I didn't get a chance to follow up with any more, <laughs> unfortunately. But um, I, I, I did get one. And the one key question was on this: the fact that he has this lieutenant governor candidate, Burt Jones, who uh, is the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. Kemp didn't support him in the primary, but, but he won, obviously. And Jones was like a literal plotter for this alternate false slate of electors and has spread a lot of election conspiracies. And, you know, Kemp's unique advantage or unique qualification right now is that he was the only Republican governor in one of these states who who passed this minimum bar of just saying, I'm going to certify the votes. Well, I guess Doug Ducey, too. I'm going to certify the votes in my state, you know, and not play ball with the Kraken you know, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani nonsense. Um, and, and so, and he talks about this and in, in his stump speech. And when I went to see him in Calhoun, 
he talks about the voter integrity bill that he passed, quote unquote, voter integrity bill. So on the left called a voter suppression bill. And he talks about how voter integrity is important. And, you know, he wanted to certify the election. He passed the most sweeping voter integrity bill in the state. And so I asked him about this. If you really care about voter integrity, which, you know, you said you, you did on the stump speech, you did the right thing in 2020. Like it must make you uncomfortable to be running with somebody that literally tried to undermine the voters of the state. And, you know, if something happened to you would be the governor in 2024. And it didn't make him uncomfortable, Charlie. I mean, it made him uncomfortable that I was asking the question, but uh, well, it, didn't make him, it didn't make him uncomfortable to have Burt Jones on the on the ticket. Um, he basically said that he supports the ticket. People can see the video up on up on the Bulwark's Twitter feed, and you know, then he he tries to to pass it off by saying essentially, "Oh well, people can disagree and agree on various things," and it's like. You know, I don't know. Uh, Whether or not Donald Trump should be an unelected autocrat is kind of a pretty serious disagreement. You know, it's not as if it's not as if you have like a little minor disagreement on you wanted a 15 week ban and he wanted a 12 week ban. And this is a pretty fundamental thing. But um, but he didn't do that. And so I I asked him that. And it's part of this broader thing, which which I want to write about on Monday is which is is he you know, there is. Not much split ticket voting anymore, not much crossover voting. And but Georgia might be this rare state where there's an exception where there's some of these former Republican expats or very conservative Southern Democrats who look at Kemp, think he's done a good job, think he did the right thing in 2020 standing up to Trump, but look at Walker and it's like that is an insane person. And, and so they're going to vote for Warnock instead. And so I interviewed a bunch of people who fit that bill. And, and I think that, you know, this Quint, the Burt Jones thing kind of complicates Kemp's ability to speak to that voter. Yeah, I, I think that you might have some of that uh, ticket splitting in Georgia and in Wisconsin, speaking of Wisconsin. I, I think you could possibly have a Democratic governor winning and a senator uh, losing. So there's a footnote to your your conversation with Brian Camp, which is that our brilliant colleague here at the uh, the Bulwark, Amanda Carpenter, had written a piece about uh, Kemp's running mate. And interestingly enough, all the smart kids in the room came forward and said, oh, this is terribly unfair. They're not running mates. They're they're not actually together. Why why would you try to smear Brian Kemp? And and so here you have Brian Kemp saying, yeah, he's he's on the ticket. I'm going to support him on all of that. But it was interesting, the the the, the need for um, even some of the normie conservatives to rush forward and say, you know, don't don't say anything mean about Brian Kemp, uh, who's running for governor and linking him to his lieutenant governor nominee. It's like, OK, whatever. They aren't really running mates. And they literally ran with this. The National Review tried to wrote a hit piece on Amanda over this. I, I know. It's yeah, just, yeah. Like, it's sick. And it's just like, like, oh, oh, mm. she's she's Amanda overstating really tried, yeah. uh, whether it, and it's like he's running to be their lieutenant governor. Like, it's not as if we are picking, you know, some random city council person in Cobb County or something. And this is the person that. Uh, Brian Kemp's a young man. I don't, you know, you don't expect that anything will happen to him. But who the hell knows? There's a scandal yeah. or a heart attack, and like this person is the governor of the state in 2024, and he was a coup plotter. So that like this is not a gotcha. Uh, you know, this is this is a question of where are your where is your red line? Do you have a red line? And Brian Kemp, it was was one of the few people to his credit that that for whom you know, actually trying to overturn the election last time was a red line. But but it seems as if having a lieutenant governor that wanted to do that isn't. Uh, it's a it's pretty uh, it's, uh, you know you're slicing that line pretty thin. But uh, right. but that's where we're at. So you know what's a problem? What's that? It's keeping up with all the craziness, all the lunacy. <laughs> I, I was just actually scrolling through some of your older articles, and you know you did a big piece about Herschel Walker. You know, um, yeah. and you know we've written about Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. 
Kerry Lake in, in Arizona. I mean, it's just like we literally could spend all of the space in the bulwark, all of the time on our podcast talking about lunatic Republican nominees around the country. And, you know, and this this may be one of the great John Bulldog. I just wrote my last one. The general in New, in New Hampshire. But, you know, Blake Masters in Arizona. And I, and I, I wrote about him in my newsletter today. And can we just take a breath? And I mean, we understand there's all of this crazy. It does feel like there's a temptation to become completely numbed by it. But I don't know. I hadn't seen it originally when it appeared. This AP story that talks about an interview that he gave where, again, Blake Masters is the Peter Thiel bankrolled candidate. So an interviewer asked Blake Masters, who is the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate, to pick a subversive thinker who he thought that people should know more about and Masters thought about it and then picked, and I am not shitting you, the Unabomber. I'll probably get into trouble for saying this, Masters responded, but hey, how about like Theodore Kaczynski? Now, Theodore Kaczynski was a domestic terrorist and murderer who um, killed three people, injured dozens between 1978 and 1995 until he was arrested. And, you know, Masters says, well, I don't endorse all of Kaczynski's views. He thinks there's a lot of insight there. He had a lot to say about the political left, about how they have inferiority complexes and fundamentally hate everything like goodness, truth, beauty, justice. Okay, so here you have a candidate for the United States Senate who, and by the way, this is not a one-off for Masters. You know, he said all kinds of, of, of crazy things. I mean, he's a provenly quoted a Nazi war criminal. And yet, I guess the big question is, how many times do these people have to tell us who they are before other Republicans will say, yeah, I'm sorry, that's nuts. I mean, in, in a normal universe, Tim, this guy would get nowhere near the ballot. And yet, Republicans, establishment Republicans in Arizona, around the country are rallying around this guy, wanting to put him in the United States Senate next to Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz and J.D. Vance and other folks like that. He is what so weird. Masters is so weird. I, I mean, in addition to being crazy, um, I watched, I don't know why I punished myself with this, but you know, sometimes I like to make sure I know what's going on out there with the people. Uh, and, uh, someone sent this to me. It was like a video of a conversation he had with Madison Cawthorn. They did like an hour long YouTube. Don't YouTube this. Like, don't do it. I did listeners and punish yourself and punish yourself with this. But he has, he just, it feels like he has some sort of antisocial disorder (laughs) and he's just a very awkward person. He does have very strange views. He's attracted to these these types of views um he, he he was like a classic message board poster i was always a message board poster as well so you know maybe i feel like i know the type on the message board there's always the people that are the most attracted to the weirdest conspiracies um masters was i forget he was on a vegan something message board and he was also on like a crossfit message board and and then some far right-wing stuff too and he's you know he, he questioned the official story of the september terrorist attacks and, you know, offered a lot of other very odd uh, opinions. You know, it is, it's hard to like, how do you focus on this, right? Um, when you have so many other lunatics on the ballot. I do, I do think this becomes a question. It's something that worked to Trump's favor. You know, like this notion of if you just, if it's just all crazy all the time, like we don't have the, the infrastructure and the capacity I know. Uh, and that, to know how to deal with it. Speaking of the opposite, though, I'd urge listeners of the podcast to check out your latest uh, Not My Party. You sat down with 
Connecticut uh, Democrat uh, Chris Murphy, who does feel sometimes like he is the last adult in Washington. Uh, It was an interesting chat. He's an interesting guy. It was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking to him. And, uh, you know, the Not My Party is only four minutes and has the memes and stuff. And so but it was such a good discussion that we posted the whole transcript on the website. So so go check it out because we talked about a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the Not My Party. And and I just, I was so, imp- I wanted to do this because I was so impressed with him on the gun thing. It would have mm-hmm. been so easy after Uvalde for somebody like Chris Murphy, who cares about this issue, who who represents Connecticut where Sandy Hook was, which happened right after he was elected, which we talk about. And to 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 do the I'm gonna go to the Senate floor and do viral speeches and do tweets dunking on Ted Cruz and Greg Abbott and like, you know, get as much MSNBC time as possible. And and he did the opposite. Like he went and actually fucking punished himself by spending time with Tom Tillis and all these guys and tried to figure out what kind of bill they could get passed, what we could do to get things done. And and he actually was even criticized about it on MSNBC and other yeah. places, um, you yeah. know, saying that like, it was kind of a sellout. So he had to, he, he did the, he, instead of taking the cheap calories, he took heat for, you know, what ended up doing being the right thing. First good piece of gun legislation, uh, you know, reasonable incremental gun legislation that had been passed since the assault weapons ban. And so, um, we talked about that, like the incentive structures that uh, disincentivize doing exactly what he did, but you know why he feels like it's good and it's the first step towards progress. I, I challenged him with some of the lefty and righty critiques, and uh, you know I, I don't I didn't agree with everything he said. I asked him by the best and worst thing Biden did. Um, it, we agreed on the worst. Uh, he 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 said that the kind of Saudi suck up uh, was something that he wasn't comfortable with. That's not a direct quote, but uh, he thought the best was Afghanistan. Okay, so we're not looking at that. (laughs) We're not looking at that one. I'm seeing eye to eye on that one. But that's part of this. Okay, it's okay to be, you know, um, in a coalition with somebody you know that you have genuine policy disagreements. That's how things used to be. Uh, That's how things used to go. So um, we disagreed on that one. But um, but I I thought he gave some really thoughtful answers about the the culture of Washington and and why what's broken about it and and why the gun bill was was so important and what more can be done on that front. So yeah, it was it was I, I thought it was a cool conversation. Well, Tim, I know you need to hit the road uh, today. And uh, uh, just a heads up for folks, uh, next Friday, we're actually going to see one another in person, which is uh, an exceedingly rare uh, event. Uh, You, me, Amanda Carpenter, live at TribFest in Austin, Texas, next Friday afternoon. That is true. Come by and see us. And so, and and here's the other thing that I just found out yesterday, Charlie. Which I can let people know if they do, if you do happen to be in TribFest, and I don't know if Charlie, if you're staying Friday night, but um, I am. I've been added as the MC for the trivia night after our pundit, the college, you know, Republicans oh. and Democrats of the UT have a trivia night that they sponsor. Can I so get a maybe, ticket to that? Yeah, you can. Yeah, maybe we oh. can get a little bulwark table going and I won't feed you all the answers, but I might feed you one or two just to give you a little head, just no, to give no, you a little I, heads I up on the advantage. competition. I, 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 I just want to see the MC stylings of Tim Miller. Tim, yeah, um, something to do. You have a great weekend and looking forward to seeing you and Amanda next Friday. Have a great weekend. All right, can't wait. We'll see you, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>